again, Shirley Bible. I hope you came here this morning with joy, because joy is one of the fruits that grows out of a vibrant relationship with Jesus, and if I had a wish for you, it would be that, that your relationship with Jesus would be vibrant and growing, that it would be something that um, just is evident out of the fruit of a, of a heart that is filled with the Holy Spirit, that you would have joy. And, uh, and re- in the recognition that your sins are forgiven, that your past is paid for, that your present is full of the presence of God, and that your future is eternally secure through faith in Jesus Christ. Because if we know those things down in our heart of hearts, and, you know, a professor of mine here just recently passed away, uh, Dr. Howard Hendricks. He said, you know, he says, belief is what you know. Conviction is what you cannot forget. And if we had the conviction that Jesus loves us, that his spirit is within us, that our sins are paid for, that our future is secure, I think we couldn't help but have joy. And I wanted to share with you here before I got into this passage, this is kind of a challenging passage as we uh, approach it here, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we're going to be today. As I wanted to just share with you one of the things that I, have, I learned this week, or was reminded of this week anyway, as I've teaching our SALT guys on, on Wednesday night. Uh, we're looking into uh, uh, Pastor Mark Driscoll uh, talk about vintage Jesus, and he's talking about how Jesus fills the roles of prophet and priest and king. That Jesus as prophet is the one who announces the truth, uh, comes from God, and he is one who calls us out of sin and into obedience. That as king... He is the God who rules over all things and rules over our lives and therefore is the God who demands every aspect of our life be brought into submission to him. That There is no private life that we get to have. And he also talked about how Jesus is our priest. Remember that from uh, from the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is our great high priest who not only is the sacrifice, but also intercedes on our behalf before God. That he is the great high priest who, who's, who has covered over our sin with his own blood, but also intercedes before God for us. And that he is the God, therefore, who not only calls us to obedience, but he is the God who helps us to obey by the giving of his own presence and purity to make us his holy people. And I bring all that up because, you know, we're going through a book like 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians seems like, a book that is almost exclusively prophetic, where it basically hammers us every week as we go through here. You're not obeying God's word. You're not obeying. You're not obeying. You're not obeying. And, it's, and it calls us and convicts us to, and invites us to bring all of life into submission to God's authority and to live out the gospel in every area of our life. And that's kind of my tendency anyway. If I have a tendency as a preacher is to be more of a, a preacher that emphasizes God's kingship and his prophetic rule over our life, calling us out of sin and into obedience. And I can have a tendency many times to forget that Jesus is priest, that he is the God who loves us, that he is the God who came as a man incarnate to not only call us to obedience, but to be the God who is with us and who helps and who grants the obedience he requires. And so I just want to take just a, minute, just a minute to remind us all of that. That Jesus is the God who loves us and who helps us to obey by the, his Holy Spirit the standard he requires of us. So it's not as if he says, you must jump this high. He says, I will empower you to clear the hurdles that I set up for you. I will give that which I require. And I, because, why? Because I love you. Even when I did that thing that I don't like to tell anybody about, 
Yes, even then. Even when I continue to engage in fill in the blank? Yes, even then. God loves us. And he doesn't give us all these requirements and all this instruction because he wants to make us all miserable. He is not, as my dad used to say when I was in, in youth group with him, he is not the cosmic killjoy. <laughs> right? He is not up there hoping to identify everyone who is having fun on earth and tell them to stop it. Right? He is telling us these things because he loves us and he wants us to experience the abundant life that he is offering and to fill us with his spirit to enable us to obey that which he calls us to. Amen? Okay. So with all that as a preface, turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. Now this is a passage that gives seminary students and scholars and pastors fits. But we are going to go through it. One of the things that... Um, there is a lot actually here for us to learn and to grow from. And I want to make it very clear what the Scripture is saying because it challenges us. And one of the benefits, you all have an expository preacher. Uh, that means someone who goes through the text a little bit at a time and tries to draw out of the text the meaning of it. Um. I had, uh, had somebody who got confused on their terms at one point and referred to me as a suppository preacher. <laughs> Find an opening and stick it in, I guess. But anyway, uh, expository preaching is the idea that you draw out of the text what is there and you explain it, okay? To do like Ezra, not only teaching the word, but giving the meaning that God's people might obey and be blessed thereby. Okay? And my desire in this is not to beat on anyone. It isn't to make anyone feel horrible. It is to enable us to understand what God's word says, that we might obey it and put it into practice in our lives. All right? Um, let's look at the text. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now, a couple things that I would just mention as we approach this passage this morning. First, it's about head coverings. It's about covering your hair if you're a woman. And this is a matter, if you talk to Wendy, of deep practical relevance in the Middle East and in much of the Muslim world because this issue is still live. Uh, over here, our culture has changed such that uh, the idea of wearing a hat or a veil over your hair or a scarf no longer carries the same cultural baggage. But, and I want to underline this, a lot of people, when they go through the scriptures, this is what they do. They go, well, that is cultural. Therefore, there's nothing here for me to obey. And nothing could be further from the truth. Because the reality of it is, is that Paul says, remember, 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, how much of the Scripture is inspired by God? All of it. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, reproving, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work, right? All Scripture, including this passage? Uh-huh. Um, 
Jesus said the scripture cannot be broken. And by that he meant that you can't pick and choose which portions of it you're going to obey. And so while the issue at hand might not carry the same significance for us as it would for, say, Wendy and Lindsay in Jordan, it nevertheless carries practical significance and principles that we are to obey and apply for us in our culture as well. Uh, In addition, I want you to see a couple of other things about this text. First of all, Paul starts off commending them that he says you maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. What's he referring to in the traditions? He's talking about the oral traditions about Jesus that were handed down because the Gospels are not written until about the 50s A.D., and that's about 20 years after Jesus. But nevertheless, it was an oral culture where most people uh, did not have access to anything written down. And so you passed the authoritative teaching about Jesus from person to person. And the idea was that you were to pass it exactly as it had been given without altering it or modifying it or, or changing the words just because you thought that might make for a more interesting story that you are to hand it down exactly as it was given. And he commends them for that. But here's something else. Take a look at this. Look at verse 4. Every wife... Now, that's something else to, to just to point out. There is no, in Greek, there is no distinct word for husband versus man, and there is no distinct word for woman versus wife. So context determines what's in view. Generally speaking, this is talking about husbands and married women. Even though a lot of times it reads man or woman, it's talking about married women primarily. And so these are wives in context. But he says, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered. Now, this is talking about a context of public worship. And it might not stick out to you, and you might miss it because it seems normal. But look at what these women are doing. Praying and prophesying in where? In public. Okay. Now, as we match up Scripture with Scripture, we see that there's a context for women to utilize their spiritual gifts and to pray and to, and to uh, Paul uses the word prophesy, but the idea is teaching and explaining God's word to people in public. Now, you might not get how revolutionary this is, but let me assure you that given a Jewish context or given the context of virtually any other religion at work in the world at this time, this is revelatory stuff. That what's just assumed is that women have a role in public worship. Now there's some restrictions that are placed on how that should be. But nevertheless, the idea that women would be given that, and that that Paul just refers to it obliquely and kind of just assumes this is part of it, tells you how deeply this has worked into the culture of the early church. If you go to Israel, at the same time, you have the court of Israel that's nearest to the the center of the temple. And only Jewish men who are ceremonially clean can be there. And then outside that, you have the court of women, where women cannot even approach the altar to offer sacrifice. And then outside that, you have the court of the Gentiles, where I think everybody but the barons would be. The Gentiles, all the non-Jews. Well, Sam Rubenfeld, he'd get to the gate in the, in the center ring. All right, okay. You have, Jewish, you have Jewish blood in your veins, then you would get to be up near the, the center. But only if you were a man. And yet, by the time Paul's writing 1 Corinthians, he's assuming that women have a role in public worship. That's a big deal, okay? Um, 
huge change from both Judaism as well as virtually every other religious tradition in the world. In fact, still to this day, that's the case. Further, that tied up, if you will, in the issue of hair is also one of the heart. A woman who went uncovered was sending a message, either consciously or unconsciously. You'll notice that in this passage, Paul does not address the issue of motive. And a lot of times in our culture, we think that intent is a big deal. Well, if I don't intend to be communicating something, then I'm not communicating that. Paul never addresses the issue of motive, but he does, he does speak to something that is nevertheless a heart issue because this woman, if she is going with her hair uncovered, is sending a message. And the message she is sending is not good. She is sending a message, first of all, that she does not submit to her husband and that she is making herself available, as it were. She is advertising in public part of her feminine charms. And she is, the message might have been subtle, but the message is there just as clearly as if you saw a married woman going about without her wedding ring in public. Women today in our culture don't do that. If you're married, you wear your wedding ring. Why? So that everybody knows this is a married woman. Don't touch her. Don't think it's okay to go up and just, you know, engage in whatever kind of conversation you want. Why? Because that woman is off limits. But this is, this is a little more brazen than that. Because a woman's hair was regarded as an essential part of her sensuality and her feminine appeal. Now, you may not think of it this way, but you remember in Song of Solomon, on their wedding night, he starts talking, one of the first things he starts doing, he starts at the top of her head and works his way down and describes every part of her. And he starts off and he starts talking about, your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Okay? Now, that may not be all that romantic to you. Okay, you can, I mean, don't get, men, don't try that. <laughs> don't say to your wives, you know, baby, it's like, it's like a bunch of goats. <laughs> that won't work, okay? But the idea is, is that the goats of Mount Gilead had, these beautiful, had this beautiful long black wool, and the land of Gilead was perfect for the raising of sheep and goats. And, and so he's like, you know, just like, those goats, you know, might cascade down the hill. He's taking down her hair. Because women wore their hair up and they wore it covered. And he's taking down her hair. And in other words, this is the signal. Something romantic is about to happen. Okay? And, and, the, and a woman's hair was sensually appealing. In fact, there's a Roman writer I read in a commentary this week who was talking about how he loved to go to places where women had their hair uncovered so he could think about it later, which is creepy in the extreme, right? But nevertheless, this is the context in which Paul is writing this instruction. And he's saying, he's giving some reasons in this passage. He's going to walk through several reasons why women in, in Corinth ought to do this. And reason number one he's going to give is in this section, that it demonstrates submission to your husband. Now, I know that's every woman's favorite word, isn't it? Raise your hand if it's your favorite word. No, don't really. No one will do that. Um, so, uh, but that is what in, is in view here in this text. He talks about headship. And this idea of headship carries with it the idea of authority over Headship or submission carries two, two ideas, that of obedience and that of honor. Now again, that first one is one we don't even like. In fact, most modern weddings, you know, husbands still promise to love, honor, and cherish, but we no longer ask women to love, honor, and obey, 
do we? But that's what's in view biblically behind the idea of submission. It means honor, it means obedience. We can get into that later if you want to talk privately, okay? But that's what it means. Uh, and if you look at the text, you'll see that nobody escapes from submission. In fact, the only person who does not submit is God the Father. Husbands are to obey Christ, which would make them good husbands, because Jesus is an excellent husband to his bride. Amen? And so, husbands, if you submit to Christ, you will be an excellent husband, and your wife will have no trouble submitting to you. And then, likewise, wives should honor their husbands as their heads, just as Christ, here, uh, verse 3, just as Christ honors his head, the Father. Now, you'll notice the parallel between Christ and the Father and between men and women. And if you don't understand the Trinity, you will never get this concept of husband and wife submission. Because the idea is, now, you better say no when I ask this question, otherwise you're a heretic and we'll have to burn you at the stake. <laughs> Not really. But, uh, but seriously, this is good theology. Are Jesus, is Jesus in any way unequal to the Father? No. Again, you better say no. Better say no. If you say yes, you're a heretic. You're something, but you are not Christian if you believe in, in any difference in equality in nature between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. They all possess the same nature and attributes as God. They are all equal. And yet, what does Jesus pray in the garden? Not my will but yours be done. So Jesus submits to the Father. He is sent forth from the Father to obey the Father's will. And then the Father and the Son likewise send the Spirit forth into the world to do their will. And there is submission within the Godhead. In fact, we'll see in, I believe it's uh, chapter 15, where it talks about how Jesus submits even his rule over the entire world to the Father, so that God may be all in all. So it's not an issue of equality and subjection. It's an issue of order and having a role to play. Just as Christ submits to the Father, so husbands uh, are the head over their wives, and their wives submit to them. Hard to obey, but remember, Jesus did it first. And if Jesus can obey, then we can do the same. Because Jesus is our priest who enables us to obey by the Spirit He gives. Now, honor isn't what is happening. And that is a problem for Paul. Paul brings up men. He says, any man who prays with his head covered dishonors his now, we used to have an understanding of this in our culture. What did men do whenever they went into church? Took off their hat. Why? Because of this passage. But the bigger reason is this. Paul is highlighting this because what Roman pagan men did was they would take the folds of their toga, the loose folds of that fabric, and they would flop it up over their head when they went into the temple of Jupiter or they went into the temple of Aphrodite or whoever, and they would cover their head because they were going into the presence of God. And Paul says, if you men who are Christians do that, you are doing something that the pagans do, and you need to knock it off. Because you dishonor your head. And this, which is it, what is he talking about? Is he talking about your skull? No, he's talking about your head, Jesus Christ. And he says, in the same way, wives, if you go about uncovered, you bring dishonor to your husbands who are your head, your metaphorical, your spiritual head. And the idea is, is that you are to bring honor to the, to the person who is your head. With husbands, that is Christ. With 
wives, that is their husband, and you're to bring that person honor. Hopefully we have beat that horse sufficiently dead at this point, all right? But the idea is, is that he says, look, if you are putting your feminine charms on display, you are bringing shame and dishonor to your husband, and that's wrong. And on top of that, he says, it's the same as if you would be shaved. Uh, and that any woman that won't cover up should be shaved. Now, why is that? It's because traditionally, the punishment for adultery, if a man caught his wife committing adultery, he would have her shaved. And the idea is, is that you would be stripped of that which enabled you to commit your sin. And that has modern precedent, by the way. If you remember uh, the movie, the miniseries Band of Brothers, you see a scene in there that historically happened to about 20,000 French women. Uh, as the Allies swept over uh, France and began to claw back the continent of Europe uh, from the Germans, any women who had been carrying on relationships with the Germans while they were the occupying army were denounced as horizontal collaborators, and they were shaved, and then they were paraded about through town in the back of open trucks as a way of shaming them for collaborating with the enemy. And that was done not only in France, but also in the Netherlands, in Italy, in Belgium, because the idea was these women have brought shame to the nation. And so we will shame them. And the idea that Paul is saying is, if these women are this brazen, then let them bear the punishment of the prostitutes they are wanting to be. That's bad. And this is a stern warning about a serious issue. Submission ought to be public as well as private. And, and the reason is, is that the gospel is at stake. Because the idea is, see, here's the problem. Paul is very concerned about the spread of the gospel and about the message that's being sent by the behavior of the Corinthians. And he says, if, if, believing, if, if people get the idea that believing the gospel makes a woman immoral and unsubmissive to her husband, then that's the wrong message to send. Because that is not what ought to happen. That women who believe the gospel ought to be the most modest, the most virtuous, the most honoring of their husbands. Because they are the ones, we are the ones who possess God's truth on all these matters. Now let's move on. This is a tough passage. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But what woman is the glory of man? For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Now, this is a passage that might confuse you because it seems to imply that women do not bear God's image. That is not what Paul is saying. What he is saying is that because a woman was created out of man and made for him rather than the reverse, she needs to demonstrate publicly her submission to her husband in a way that he does not. But the primary focus of the passage is that both women and men reflect the glory of another to whom they submit. Elsewhere in Scripture, this is probably the idea Paul is picking up on. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4, it's a similar idea. It says this. This would be one to memorize. An excellent wife is her husband's crown, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. The whole idea is, is that a woman who is submissive to her husband that this ought to be publicly apparent and it brings glory to that man. Now, I have seen 
some examples of this. Thank God, none of them in this church where there are, there are women who dishonor their husbands publicly and there's really nothing the man can do except be humiliated. But I heard a story about this of a, a pastor going over, this pastor is someone personally known to me, he said, I was over at a friend's house and we were all having dinner at their home and um, husband is trying to help his wife out and he's bringing stuff out and she says to him right in front of everybody, when I want you to bring that out, I'll tell you. Now what's he going to do? He, well, what he didn't do was, what's wrong with you, foul woman? Get back to the kitchen. You know, he didn't say that. Okay, there's nothing for him to do except be publicly shamed and dishonored in front of all of his guests. And so, you know, the guy just kind of tucks his head. But it was dishonorable. It was shameful. Wrong. And there he looks like a kicked puppy, kind of going back to the kitchen with his tray of casserole, you know. <laughs> you know? Uh, it was shameful. It was wicked. And yet that's, this woman dishonored her husband. And Paul says, look, this is a virtue. This is a virtue. But that woman was like rottenness in the bones. Proverbs says it's like bone cancer. Far better to have bone cancer than to have a woman who will not follow and honor her husband. And every guy, whether he admits it or not, will say that. I happen to have the first part of this verse. An excellent wife is her husband's crown. I feel like I lucked out in the lottery of life that God was so gracious. He gave me this magnificent woman who does me good all the days of my life. But I've seen the other kind, and he's exactly right. Far better to have bone cancer, because then there's some end in sight. <laughs> okay? It's bad. It's bad. Okay? By the way, a man with a woman like that, he will do two things. Or he, he, can, do, he can do only three things, okay? He can wimp out, he can check out, or he can lash out. None of them are good. Okay? If he wimps out, he just kind of rolls over and is like, yes, dear. Okay, and that's miserable. That woman winds up coming to me and pray, you know, praying with me, oh, God, that you would light a fire under my husband. Okay? Uh, the guy who checks out, you know, he, like, finds a way to go play softball about four nights a week. You know, have poker night, whatever. He's, he's, go he's just gone. I don't know what happened to him. He's spending a lot of time at work these days. And the guy who lashes out, that's the guy who says, I will not have you talk to me that way. And sometimes there's screaming and there's yelling and there's the throwing of stuff and even, in the most extreme cases, abuse. And all of these options are horrible. And that's not to blame the woman, by the way, for that guy's sin. But it is to say that we bear responsibility to hold up our end. Amen? Now look at verse 10. What is because of the angels referred to? Well, scholars puzzle and argue over it, but here's what I think. Uh, there's a long tradition among the Jews. Uh, you see this in Stephen's speech uh, as an example, that the Jews mediated the giving of the law by Moses and that they're the ones who traveled through the desert to the land with them. And that further, it was God's holy angels who struck dead the Israelites at times for their rebellion. And so I think Paul is saying this, that remember, by the way, 
that just as God's holy angels were present with the people of Israel in the past, that God's holy angels are present with us in the present. And acting in an unsubmissive or illegitimately sexual way at worship may result in your judgment too. It's a pretty stern warning, in other words. Now look at verse 11 and 12. Now this is, this is where all this comes into balance, just a little bit. He balances all this talk of submission and glory and shame and honor with emphasis on interdependence. And thus I think he, what he's doing is he's affirming again, just in case anybody gets confused, the essential equality and honor and glory of women. That just because they submit does not make them less than you, men. And we need that reminder. Remember, men, that it was that God took the woman out of Adam's side to be cherished and protected. He did not take her out of our head to rule over us, and he for darn sure did not take her out of our feet that we might step on them, but out of our side to be with us and protected by us and to be side-by-side companions for us. And he says, look, remember, it's true that the woman came out of the man, but every man now comes out of a woman. We need each other. We're interdependent. And all things are from God. In other words, remember, this is not something that we came up with. This is something God came up with. And you are to treat one another with honor. Or as Peter has it this way in 1 first, in first Peter chapter 3, grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life with you that nothing may hinder your prayers. If you're a man, memorize that. Grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life that nothing may hinder your prayers. It's the essential equality of women the glory of women, that they stand equal with you before God as women. There's an order to marriage, and there is, just as there is to creation, and submission is important. However, men and women are equal before God. And, and here's the last section, Paul gives his concluding arguments. He says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her, hair un- her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, Paul's first argument in this last part of the passage here is from nature, by which he means the way that humans innately understand there to be a difference between men and women. If you do not believe there is a difference between men and women and you are single, marry someone of the opposite sex for five minutes, and I will assure you, you will understand there is a difference between men and women. We do not think the same. We do not act the same. We do not emote the same way. We are not the same. We are not interchangeable. Okay? We are not the same. God created men that are made a certain way and women that are made in a complementary way that is glorious. It's a reason we refer to the ladies that we marry as our better half. They are not just better looking. They are better in lots of ways. Right? But he says, look, Men and women are different. And historically, one of the ways and culturally all over the world that we have identified that is that women typically have longer hair than men. Even in cultures where men have longer hair than mine. You know, like as an example, the ancient Spartans, uh, the men had all, sh- all had shoulder-length hair and they would pull it back in a ponytail as they went into battle. And nobody thought those guys were wimps. Have you seen the movie The 300? Okay, these men were not wimpy men. Okay? But, but the women had hair down to here at least. 
there was a difference, and, it, and the difference was indicated by hair length. And he says, if a man has long hair, it's shameful. He looks feminine. That's goofy. That's weird. You know, if you look back to the 1960s, there were those years where the men, you know, kind of the moon got full, you know, and everybody came up, you know, hair everywhere, right? Okay, but even in those years, the women typically had longer hair than the men. And he says, nature ought to tell you there's a difference. And a woman's hair is, in a sense, her glory. Something God gives her as part of the radiance of her femininity. And so to put that on display for all and sundry in this culture is, is absolutely inappropriate. You know, just as if you, as a woman, walked into church topless, it would draw attention in all of the wrong ways to you. And it would be distracting to all of the men who are there to worship God. It's the same kind of idea. That you do not put your glory on display and and allow your glory to compete with that that belongs to God. Because in the service, what we're here to do is bring glory and honor to God. Not to be distracted by anything else. He says, and in addition to that, finally, that covered feminine hair is the norm across all the churches. So everybody who wants to argue should consider carefully the fact that they're rebelling against the well-established custom of everybody else. And that ought to matter. Now, I bet a lot of you are wondering, how exactly does this relate to me? Because nobody, none of the men in this room, I'll guarantee you, go home and are like in a sweat over some woman's hair that they saw. Okay? (laughs) They're not having to confess that. They're not going, oh, geez, I went into lust. Over the length of that ponytail, that was something. Okay, no one is having that reaction. All right? But the issue is not just hair. The issue is one of the heart. And And I would like to just draw our attention back to three issues that I think Paul is addressing here that I think we do well to address in our day, too. The number one issue in this passage is one of modesty and virtue. Modesty and virtue. In not wearing head coverings at church, these women in Corinth are distracting the men as they are worshiping and because they are sending a sexual signal. And so, just as then, as now, Christian women ought not send any messages that communicate that their feminine charms are on display and available. Uh, And they ought to communicate that. By the way, modesty is not just an issue of dress. There are three kinds of modesty. There's modesty of dress, and that matters. Modesty of demeanor. In other words, how does this person act? Because you can look like an Amish housewife and still communicate. Amen? You can. And then, and then so that's nonverbal. And then verbally, verbal modesty as well. What do you say? Are you flirtatious? Are you indicating by the way that you speak? And what you talk about? that you are available. You ought not do that. You ought not advertise your feminine appeal. And by the way, men, you have a responsibility to, as they said back in grade school, keep your eyes on your own paper, as it were. Right? If this woman is not the woman to whom you are married, avert your eyes. Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. Jesus says, 
a woman, a man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. In other words, you've got to flee. Regardless of what she's doing, you have a responsibility as well to be modest in your soul and in your eyes and with your mind as well. Virtue and purity are things that ought to characterize all Christian people regardless. Number two is the issue of submission. And again, I don't want to beat this horse much longer because I know how difficult it must be in many cases. It's tough. But nevertheless, Christian women, according to the scriptures, if we're going to be Christian, we must submit to our husbands if we're women. And we must give them honor, not because they deserve it, but because of Christ who submits to the Father and who called us into repentance and redemption with him. That if he can submit, then we can submit. And that includes not just your words, but also your tone and also your manner. And remember, Jesus is the priest. And he intercedes and he helps to obey that which he has called us to. Last issue, and this is the biggest one is the discrediting of the gospel. And I think this is why Paul is emphasizing all of this to the degree that he is. Because he is worried about the discrediting of the gospel. These Christian women in Corinth are giving a bad impression about the result of belief in the gospel that it led to having a rebellious, immoral wife. And I wonder, in our day, what our actions communicate and whether or not they give credit to the gospel or whether they are discrediting. You know, lots of people, I think, disrespect Christians in our culture, in our day, not because we are so radically committed to following what the Scripture says, but specifically because we are not. And what they are offended by is not our standards, but our hypocrisy in that we will not live up to that which we proclaim. So on the one hand, we denounce those who are homosexual and want to get married, but on the other hand, we have no problem with those who are heterosexual and living together, or getting divorced, or those who are getting drunk, or those who are gossiping, or those who slander one another, or those Christians who take one another to court in contradiction to the Scriptures, or those who will do whatever is necessary for the making of an almighty dollar rather than submit their business to the almighty king. And they look at us and they say to us, in fact, I, my father, as you know, was a Christian businessman for many years, and he told me, son, you have never truly been screwed in business until you have been screwed by your fellow believer. And that happens. And these things ought not be because they are discrediting to the gospel. They say to the watching world, look, all those Christians, what they do many times is they act as if they have you know, been marked and stamped for heaven and therefore they are then able to, to and permitted to do whatever they want. And Paul says in Romans 6, remember? Shall we sin boldly that grace might abound? May genota, may it never be. May it never be true of us that we are discrediting to the gospel in what we do, either verbally or non-verbally. Yeah, modesty is a big issue. And evaluate your life. But evaluate your life more on what does my life say about Jesus? Does it say about him that he is the Savior who not only grants eternal salvation, but who changes and redeems my life now? Because if he does not bring about any change in our life now, then no one wants to hear about eternal life in the sweet by and by. No one wants to hear pie in the sky by and by, by and by, when there is nothing happening today in how we live our life. 
There are 12,500 people in, this, in the community of Chillicothe. If you add up all the people attending churches in this community, I bet it's less than 1,000 that attend church in town. Maybe there are some who go into the big churches in Peoria and uh, out to Brimfield and so forth for Bethany and all that, and that's good. But I'll assure you it's far less than a majority of folks in this community who are lost and going to hell. Who are working at going to hell. Digging to hell by everything that they do. And the only way they will come to faith in Christ is if we are bold enough to open our mouth and the only way our testimony will make any sense is if our life is consistent with the scriptures. Amen? Otherwise, we will be written off as just another one of those hypocritical people. And yes, do I understand there's always a gap between what we say and the truth that we profess and the life that we live? Sure there is. We're still sinners. But nevertheless, we ought to eliminate as much as possible that gap that we might bring credit to the gospel and to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it speaks powerfully to us of matters of the heart and how we might live the redeemed life. Father, I pray that we would remember that Jesus Christ is the great high priest who is the sacrifice and who does intercede for us before your throne. Father, may we come boldly, therefore, before the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and help in time of need. Because, Father, we are in a time of great need right now, personally and as a church and as a country. Father, our People all around us are deeply lost, and we have the words of life. Father, I pray that we would live in a way that brings credit to the gospel, that brings honor to Jesus, and that brings glory to you. And Father, I pray that you would empower us in such a way with your Holy Spirit that all that we do would be brought into submission to you by the power of the Spirit whom you have given us to change us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.